Hello and welcome to Special Issue, where we talk about all things scholarly and society publishing. I am Anna Ayler. This month we are bringing you a very special guest appearance from our sister podcast, This Study Shows. This Study Shows is a new podcast from Wiley, where we explore how we tell the story of science. It's amazing, and if you don't already subscribe, I hope you do. The first episode is called, How Do I Make People Care? And we grapple with why research evidence often doesn't hold up against scientific skepticism or doubt. Here is This Study Shows. Hello and welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Danielle George. Our podcast is all about research communication. What we're talking about is how we talk about and share research, whether that's your own or someone else's, whether you're an academic, an educator, or someone else working in policy and science. Yes, so why does it matter? How can we get better at it? And who can we learn from? We are going to hear from experts in all areas of science and science communication. We've got guests from a whole variety of fields, including conservationists, psychologists, cell biologists, geologists, and from many different professions. Those currently involved in research, people working in government, science bloggers, storytellers, and journalists. I'm an anthropologist and I specialise in presenting science and social science on TV, radio and in print. So I'm often the person asking researchers those tricky questions and hoping that they give me and the audience a comprehensible answer. <laughs> and I'm a professor of radio frequency engineering. I engineer the tools of scientific discovery. So basically that means I um, design instrumentation for telescopes largely radio telescopes. Which is cool. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> the thing that unites us is that science communication is absolutely crucial, isn't it? It's, it's important to have a better informed public, which makes better informed policymakers, which makes a better world. Absolutely, yeah. I'm really passionate about raising the public awareness of, of the impact engineering has on our everyday lives as well. And, and also to highlight it, especially to young people, to try and inspire them. And even if you're feeling quite self-interested and isolated in your scientific closet, that's a good thing because better appreciation of science means more money and better students coming into science means better grad students who can wash your test tubes for you. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't use test tubes, but yes. So in each episode of This Study Shows, we're going to explore a big question about communicating research. And today's question is, how do I make people care? I think this is a really good one to start with uh, for me because I used to foolishly assume that people already cared because I work on things for space and space is cool, right? So why wouldn't why wouldn't people care about that? But then, you know, I've been several times, I've had people sort of go, well, why bother? And then you go away and cry. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. That is tricky. I once had a phone call um, from someone who was organising a scout camp and they said, oh, would you be able to come and help us? We want to set up some archaeology activities for the young people who are going to be at this summer camp. And I said, oh, yeah, OK, you know, we can definitely talk about what I might be able to help you with. Yeah. And they said, and of course, because it is really boring, isn't it? Like history and stuff. But, you know, we're going to try and get something going because, you know, the ones who don't want to do abseiling and rock climbing probably need to do something. And I was like, oh, 
great. You sound like a fun collaborator. (laughs) I think it's time for us to be introduced to our first guest, the amazing Mona Chalabi. She is the data editor at The Guardian US, and she makes hand-drawn data visualisations, everything from how a mass shooter's race correlates with whether they're described as mentally ill through to how many endangered ammo leopards you can fit in a New York subway carriage, (laughs) which is basically all of them that still exist in the world. But what she does is a combination of very accurate data representation and the far side cartoons. They're often quite funny, quite shocking. They definitely arrest you in a way that your standard bar chart doesn't. I asked her why she decided to do data visualisation in the way she does. I mean, basically, it's an effort to make the charts memorable. I think one of the shortcomings of most computer-generated graphics is that once you take away the labels on that pie chart or that bar chart, it could be about anything at all. And what I'm trying to do is to marry the subject matter with the visualisation itself. So rather than just using like, um, let's say, a bar chart on waiting lines to vote in different parts of the country, why not show lots and lots of people queuing up? And then that sticks in your head a little bit more because the visual reflects the subject. So part of it is about a desire to just be more memorable. Um, And another part of it is also just reminding people that data is inherently biased. It's inherently biased. And just because something was generated by a computer... It doesn't mean that this science is objective and perfectly neutral. And I think that very often part of people's frustration with science, again, with journalism, is that they feel like there's a lack of honesty about exactly where those biases come in. And you and I both know that like, this claim of objective, perfect scientific precision and neutrality is not true. And neither is the claim that it's just completely made up and rubbish, right? So if we can be more honest about where one starts and the other ends, I'm trying to communicate the imprecision to people. I'm trying to communicate the uncertainty. For example, I will never put a decimal place on an illustration, never. Because it is so rare that we actually truly, especially when it comes to the social sciences, know anything to a decimal place. Our margins of error are too big for that, right? And and to communicate decimal places, we're overstating precision, we're overstating how much we know. How did you come up with the idea of doing it? Um, so I was working in a job that really, really emphasised computer-generated graphics and I felt like they were actually misleading. Um And I became very disillusioned with it. So I was actually working for a website that was creating predictions about the US election. And I remember, like, I just felt very uncomfortable with the use of polling. I think that, again, like, it's not just a question of informing people. It's also being aware that when you are informing people, you can also shape behaviour. So if you really, really communicate to the general public, listen, there's an 85.4% chance that Hillary Clinton will win because you're emphasising certainty, people really, really think, okay, that means she's definitely going to win. I know that's not what the probability 85.4% means, but people feel very, very confident about that. And if people feel very confident about that, how does that affect voting behaviour? How does it actually shape the ways that people behave in the polls? And I think um, I just came away feeling like, just feeling very, very disillusioned with the way it's done right now. And speaking about like science and academia more broadly, I guess, um, again, I just remembered being in university and reading those studies that were just so fascinating and so rich. And then you get to the data visualizations in the annex and they're just so like, what, what? 
They're just so <laughs> forgettable. And you can feel that these researchers have so much passion and it's not communicated with the visuals. And I think it's okay to communicate your passion in science. It doesn't make you less neutral or less um, objective. I think it makes you more honest. Yeah. So you're going to start a campaign for hand-drawn cartoons in peer-reviewed papers. Uh, it would be memorable, about... <laughs> wouldn't it, though? <laughs> it would, it would. I don't know about hand-drawn ones. I don't know how many scientists are going to be on board with that, but I would definitely push for more visualisations to communicate the subject matter in the visual. And also, this is what I would really, really push for. So I have a process. When I create these hand-drawn visualisations... I very often will have like three or four drafts of the same of the same data set visualized in different ways. And I text those different drafts to friends and family who have nothing to do with with journalism or with data visualization. And if any of those people don't get it, I go back to the drawing board. Like I need those people who are non-specialists to understand the information. And I wish that scientists would spend more time sharing their visualizations and their papers outside of their departments and not writing for each other but writing for a general for the general public especially if they feel that the topics that they're researching are, are of importance to the general public what would you say like most people's immediate response to data is mm. even the word data or yeah. statistics i think it's fear i think it's skepticism um and i think that comes from lots of different places i think people very often conflate data and maths and because people very often have like a negative relationship with maths from school um that's where some of that fear comes from. It comes from this feeling that maybe like they won't understand it. For me, at least, I often feel fear. I feel like a little bit of anger and resentment. Like, I don't think I'm a stupid person, so why don't I get it? You know, that sort of sense of frustration that sometimes turns itself outwards and into anger. How much of what we're talking about is actually about the level of, of data and science literacy? Mm. Um, both, I suppose, within academic departments and that kind of siloed thinking yeah. and then obviously scientists and researchers communicating with the broader public. I definitely think that's an issue right so like when I say margin of error there's a lot of people who might not necessarily understand what that means but again I think to put it all on the education system is sometimes a bit of an abdication of responsibility because I think that I as a journalist have an opportunity and a responsibility to also provide the education and I would also say that academics who are writing research papers again have an opportunity to do that so again it might seem completely self-evident if you're going to write margin of error include a footnote that explains what a margin of error is the reason why people aren't doing that is because they're speaking to their peers who know what those things mean so i think there's always an opportunity to provide that education while you're informing people do you think people or different factions also exploit that that kind of gap of knowledge as well. Yeah. Um, I remember doing some research for a radio documentary mm. about um, circumcision in Africa, oh, in, wow. in Eastern and Central Africa, yeah. and it was about it being a way to reduce HIV tr transmission. Mm -hmm. And the statistic that lots of the um, medical and healthcare workers were using was that there would be a 60% reduction in risk of contracting HIV for men who got circumcised. Can I guess what the problem with the statistic was? Go. Was it about the starting point before that 60%? Yeah, exactly. And when you went out onto the streets of Kampala in yeah. Uganda and you said, okay, well, you know, what do you understand about HIV risks and transmission? Partly you got lots of people saying, oh, well, it means that you won't get chlamydia, it means mm. you won't get other STIs. But also 
six out of ten men won't get HIV anymore if you get circumcised. And you're like, that's no, so that's wrong. No, that's not, yeah. So wrong. And that's the perfect example, right, where people... That's a that's a really important decision whether or not you are circumcised or whether or not you choose to circumcise your child. And it's not a decision that I I don't think it's a decision that any parent would take lightly, right? And it impacts on potential risk-taking behaviour. If you think you're safe, then maybe you don't use a condom. Maybe yeah. you do lie to your sexual partners. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why data visualisation kind of excites me. Because I feel like if I imagine visualising that data, right, you would have one one like just straight off the top of my head, you could have like a pictogram of 100 men and it's like this is, all of these 100 men are uncircumcised, this is the HIV transmission rates and then right next to it would be 100 circumcised men and it's like all of these men are circumcised and these are the um, transmission rates. And then it's very difficult to conflate what a 60% means because you see what the actual rates are in both cases. Um, I think if data visualisation is done right, there's fewer opportunities for misunderstanding. If you had three top tips for researchers wanting to share mm. their research with a broad audience, what would they be? That's a great question. Um, I would say make sure that you're making sense. Speak to people outside of your own community and find out if the language that you're using, whether it's a visual language or whether it's your vocabulary, is still legible is still coherent to people outside of that group. Tip number two, have some fun. Depending on what the subject is, obviously you have to be kind of sensitive in terms of tone, but it's also okay to have fun sometimes with it. Um, and I think that really helps for the subjects to be more memorable. And my third top don't be arrogant. I think very often by the time that we've done all of our research and we've triple checked everything, we've published our conclusions, there's a bit of like, uh, you, like you should either get it or you or you don't get it. And like, uh, I give up. But it's like a constant conversation. When you publish the piece, that isn't the end of it. You don't just publish the piece and hope that people come and read it. You have to also like continue to have a dialogue about that piece because it's a living thing now. Once it's out in the world, it's a living thing that has a life of its own. And you have to be ready to have conversations about it. I found that really, really interesting from a from a personal research point of view because I draw lots of plots for, for my research and one plot could represent a whole PhD. So you could have spent three years getting to that plot and that plot could represent something that is the best in the world at what it's doing. But it's a plot. It's just a boring, boring plot. <laughs> so I think Mona's work is great because... Because she's sort of saying, well, yeah, you need plots and, and that's good, but they don't have to be boring. Mm. And now I'm thinking, right, what can I do for for my work as well? I think now that you're a professor, you know, you can basically do what you like, surely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think it's great that Mona's passionate and, and has thought about great ways of thinking outside the box. But we know that misinformation and fake news is everywhere at the moment. And even in the face of strong, credible evidence, many people still reject scientific findings. So I spoke to Tali Sharot, who is a professor of cognitive neuroscience in the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University College London. And um, Tali wants to challenge our ideas of what we think will convince people. If you think about it, you know, the availability of facts and figures and numbers and graphs is something relatively new. Um, if you think about how humans evolved, we evolved for 
many, 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 many years without that type of information. The way that we used to learn, and we still learn to, you know, to, to a great degree, is we learn from observing other people, from listening to stories about what happened to people around us in our family, in our village, our neighbors. And that's how our brain is set up. It's set up to learn in that kind of way. So now we have um, this additional information available to us, but our instinct is still to learn from anecdotes, and those are extremely powerful. And there's, in addition to that, there's all sorts of biases that can interfere with our ability to take in information in uh, a neutral manner. So just to name a couple of them, um, there's a confirmation bias, which our tendency to take in information that confirms what we already believe and to tend to relatively disregard or look with a critical eye at information that doesn't fit what our beliefs are at present time. The other bias um, that we study a lot is what you can call a motivational bias, or sometimes you call it an optimism bias, which is our tendency to take in information that fits what we want to believe, more so than information that suggests something that we don't really want to believe in. So you're challenging our ideas of what we think will convince people, and you've set up a lab, haven't you? Yes, my lab is the Effective Brain Lab at University College London. We are interested in how the brain works, and specifically we're interested in emotion and in decision-making, um, and how emotions, and when I say emotions, it's it could be simple things like whether the information is good or is bad, how does that affect whether you listen to the information and take it into account to form your belief? Ah, that's really Really interesting because it, it's it's quite easy just to think, let's take climate change, it's quite easy to sort of think, oh, well, you know, it's the people who are less intelligent, don't believe it. But that's not true, is it? Um, it's this idea that that some evidence convinces some people and not others. And and there's something that you talk about in your, in your book, The Influential Mind, about um, cultural cognition. Yeah, so it's interesting that most people... Um you know, kind of intuitively think, well, this is related to how intelligent people are, right? If you're more intelligent, probably you'll take in information, whether it's, you know, one way or the other. Um, but in fact, uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. So studies from mm. Dan Kahan at Yale University has shown that people um, with better analytical and math skills are actually more likely to twist data at will. So he did a study where the first thing he did, he took 1,000 Americans and he gave them a math test. And based on the math test, he divided them into those who were really good at math and those that were not very good at math. And then he gave them two data sets. The first data set, he said, is looking at whether um, skin treatment is reducing skin rash. So unsurprisingly, those with better math and analytical skills did better at this task. Then he gave them another data set. And this data set, he said, is looking at whether gun control laws are reducing crime. So look at the data, analyze the data, and tell me whether gun control um, laws are reducing crime. Now, in this case, everyone had a very strong opinion about gun control, right? When it came to skin treatment, no one had a, a prior, what we call, you know, a prior belief. Um, but when it came to gun control, they mm. did, quite, a, quite a, a passionate one. And those beliefs interfered with their ability to analyze the data. Um, so, and, and, and there's a bit of a controversy, I have to say. Some, there's some other scientists that suggest, well, intelligence does help. 
Um, but at the most, um, there's definitely not a clear research line that says intelligent, you know, intelligent people are less likely to be biased. I want to give you a challenge about my own research. So in my research, I design instrumentation for radio telescopes. And so I talk a lot about uh, space. And, and I had a challenge a couple of years ago from a guy in the audience who at the end just put his hand up and sort of said, why bother? Why are we doing this? Why should we care about what goes in space when, when we've got all of these other challenges on the Earth? So, you know, we need to cure cancer, we need to sort out climate change, we need to discover what's happening in our own oceans. So how do I make people care about my research? Well, this is actually a great example because my answer to this question um, will apply quite easily to your situation, which is, at the end of the day, we have to go along with how the brain works. Our brain really cares about um, survival, about survival of the species, but really survival of the, the you know, the, the body is, that is attached to that brain. Um, and in order to survive, you have to uh, get the rewards in the world, which is food and so on, and you have to avoid harm. People care about information that can benefit them. When it comes to space, space exploration mm. has actually resulted in discoveries that are really important for what's going on here on Earth. A lot of things that we now use in every day um, are the consequence of the space program. And the second thing, if it's not necessary to start off by saying to tell someone that they are wrong, that would be best. It is very difficult to try to change people's beliefs that they already hold very strongly. But often we don't really need to do that in order to get to the outcomes that we're interested in. Um, I mean, sometimes you have to ask yourself, why do we want people to believe a certain thing? Why do we want them to care about a certain thing, right? It's, I mean, it's not an, an kind mm. of an obvious answer to that question. You have to think about it for every kind of part of science or that you're taking, that you're looking at. And let me give you a concrete example. Um, the issue of uh, childhood vaccines and autism. So there are mm. quite a large number of, of individuals who believe in the alleged link between childhood vaccines and autism. And because of that, they uh, resist vaccinating their kids. Now, the reason that we want them to change yeah. their minds is not because we care about the belief per se. It's because we care about their actions, right? We care about them vaccinating their kids. And so the way that we need to think about it is, can we get them to change their actions, which is to vaccinate their kids? And maybe we can do that without even trying to change their beliefs about the link to autism. Because... If you do go ahead and just say, oh, well, you're wrong and, you know, here's all the data that suggests that you're wrong, science has actually shown that that doesn't work, that mm -hmm. approach doesn't work. Um, and so is there any way yeah. else we can go about it? So a, a group of scientists at UCLA actually um, looked at this question. What they did was instead of going, you know, the parents came into the physician and said, I don't want to vaccinate my kid because I believe I believe that there um, is a link with autism. Instead of going ahead and saying, well, there's no link and here's the data suggesting there's no link and this doesn't work mm. because they already have a prior belief. They ignored the link to autism altogether. And instead they said, 
Well, these vaccines protect kids from potentially deadly diseases, the measles, mumps, and rubella. Now, this is something that the parents didn't disagree with. They absolutely um, believed in that, but it seemed to have been forgotten in the heat of the debate. And by highlighting the fact that these vaccines protect kids from the other deadly diseases rather than talking about autism, they were three times more likely to change parents' intentions of vaccinating their kids. So often, we need to think about what is the outcome that we really care about, and can we get to To this outcome in alternative ways without necessarily focusing on what we disagree on. What are your favorite science films? Oh, what are your favorite worst science films? Oh, worst science films for sure, Armageddon. Oh, really? Why? Terrible. <laughs> Ter- just terrible. Like <laughs> most things about it is just terrible. But I think. The, the thing that, that I really get annoyed about, like I'm, I'm vexed yeah, even like talking to you about it, um, <laughs> is this sort of go, uh, all right, there's this sort of meteorite the size of Texas and it's coming towards Earth. Mm-hmm. Oh, but hey, nobody realized until like 12 hours ago. <laughs> and like, really? And, you know, people would have known, like astronomers would have known for months and months that there was something the size of Texas coming towards Earth. To be fair, though, that would make quite a dull film if you went, Oh, guys, it's it's coming, but not really imminently. (laughs) And we've probably got time to do something about it. (laughs) Yeah, very, very true. Very (laughs) true. But it's the truth. That's why I get more vexed than it was. Oh, bless you. You know, they've made it up. You know, it's Hollywood, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I was talking about this to Professor David A. Kirby. Now, he studies in this area, but he actually started out in molecular evolutionary genetics and then got really interested in film and television depictions of science. So he changed his discipline. And, well, I'll let him explain what he does now. I am a professor of science communication studies at the University of Manchester, and my research is on uh, the ways in which entertainment media, movies, and television function as vehicles for science communication. So let's talk about the role of uh, experts and and scientists and and the role they play in filmmaking. Uh, What is it that they do? Well, I should probably introduce my book uh, here at this point. Um, So I wrote a book called Lab Coats in Hollywood, where I interviewed a large number of scientists and and some filmmakers uh, about scientists working as consultants on Hollywood movies. That was actually the question that's sort of what I was interested in. Like, what does a filmmaker want from a scientist when they bring them on board? Um, And, you know, for most people, the sort of knee jerk is, oh, well, they just check the facts, right? And when you start to think about it, I mean, science is much more than just a collection of facts in a textbook. There's a lot of things that make up what science is. Science is scientists. Science is the spaces that scientists work in. Science is also scientists' interactions with policymakers, with uh, journalists, with lots of other different types of people. Yeah, I essentially, I came up with sort of six uh, categories So this is my bias about Armageddon again, but the category I was most interested in was opportunities for drama. So that might be asking a scientist about all the different ways something can go cataclysmically (laughs) wrong so that they can put them into the script. Yeah. For the the filmmakers, right, the, the whole point for them is to make this entertaining. And so what they're hoping the scientists can help them do is to utilize science to create situations that will be more dramatic or more uh, exciting. And one of the examples that I like to use is the movie Deep Impact, um, which is about a comet that's coming to hit the Earth, and they send out uh, 
bunch of astronauts to go land on the comet. What the filmmakers wanted uh, was how can we make this dramatic, right? I mean, it's a huge hunk of the film. It's 45 minutes mm. of the film. And the filmmakers had no idea what they could do on the comet, <laughs> surface of a comet. Uh, and so they brought in some scientists for a think tank and said, help us out here. You know, we got 45 minutes, which we need them to do things. Give us some things. And that essentially gave them the, the sort of most exciting elements uh, of that film. Do you think we're getting more science consultants now? Oh, yeah, there's definitely more of a need. Nowadays, it would be really uncommon to not have a scientist when you make a film or TV show that has a lot of scientific content. And some of that comes from the success of films like Jurassic Park. Um, I actually see it as a sort of a post-Jurassic Park phenomenon. Jurassic Park comes out, it's got this realism, Filmmakers see how successful it is. Um, and then from there, um, audiences now expect it to be scientifically plausible in a way. And the, the public perception of science can really change depending on what they're watching. I mean, if you take things like uh, robotics, artificial intelligence, yeah. you know, Hollywood's got a lot to answer for in terms of, <laughs> you know, robots are going to take over the world and kill all humans yeah, and things yeah. like that. And yeah. so it really does have a, a profound effect on public perception of science, I think, as well, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and that's one of the things that I tell scientists who go to work as consultants for movies or for television shows is make sure you're happy with the representation that's going to be in the, in the film. Because if you're not happy, if you if they ask you to be an advisor on a movie that is going to feature robotics or artificial intelligence and they're going to make the robot a killer robot, well, then you don't have to work on that film and give them that legitimacy. I interviewed one guy who worked on a horror film from the 80s from called Warning Sign. And he was a genetic engineer, did plant biotechnology. And the film essentially showed plant biotechnology creating monsters. And... Uh, at the time, he saw it as sort of a lark that he was working on this, this uh, you know, film. Uh, and then afterward, I think he, he got a, a sense of guilt. And so he became this radical advocate <laughs> for plant biotechnology and created his own documentary. And I always thought this was sort of penance for him working on that okay. uh, particular type of film. But yeah, media, entertainment media in particular, is very powerful. So if they're going to portray it in a way you don't like, then don't. Yeah, don't give them that publicity. Yeah. yeah. So do you think the portrayal of scientists in entertainment movies affects career choices for people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I call it the, the sort of twister effect, um, but, uh, you know, other people could point to other movies and, and, and talk about the ways in which those movies inspired people to go on into scientific careers. So in Twister, you know, um, a lot of people went on to be meteorologists uh, because they were inspired by the scientists in, in those movies. Uh, and that's why it's important um, to have more female scientists, people of color, to inspire uh, people so that if you have that uptick in science, um, that you're getting sort of marginalized groups who, who go into science and can be inspired by a portrayal they see in the movies or on television. Mm. I think he's absolutely right. By making the visibility of scientists greater and expanding the the portrayals of science and scientists beyond the kind of the 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 cliches mm. it means that science is open to as broad a range of talent as possible and i think that's absolutely key yeah absolutely 
So, Danielle, what stands out for you from this episode? Do you reckon any of this is going to change your your everyday professional life? I really think it is, actually, especially Mona's work on the plots. I really can feel like I will take that back into my lab and it will um, hopefully positively affect what I do. I think the thing that I'm taking away is the importance of acknowledging the reality that simply presenting the facts isn't enough. Yeah. And getting stuck on that and therefore not engaging or reaching out to a public, to policymakers, to other scientists, simply does us and the science a disservice. It doesn't make your research any less valid or important. It just means that it's going to have more impact in the world. And if you're not bothered about whether your science and research has impact in the world, then why are you doing it in the first place? Absolutely. Okay, so just before we go, I'd like to introduce you to a little game that we'll be playing on each episode. We're calling it the Wiley Fictionary. We want our podcast guests and you, our listeners and followers on social media, to tell us your made-up words and phrases and help us build a dictionary for all of those experiences, both specific and universal, that happen in the life of a researcher. So, Marianne, what's yours? Okay, so my word is canthropology, which is after a hard day of doing research, it's time for a can of something cold. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, mine is ice cream head, which, <laughs> right. which comes from when I'm looking at something that's really complicated, I get like brain freeze. Mm-hmm. And so brain freeze goes to ice cream head. Nice. I like that. I have that regularly, <laughs> just before I, I reach the point of my day where it's canthropology time. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So next week, you'll hear what our guests have to contribute to the fictionary. Thank you so much for listening to This Study Shows. And if you'd like to share your made-up words or feedback with us, then tweet us at Wiley in Research or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. We'd love to hear from you. That is it for this episode of Special Issue. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Anna Ayler. You can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can also get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley Societies and on our website, wiley.com network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening. <laughs>